You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and this is the October Journal Club edition, the podcast wrap-up of the Journal Club that we've had uh, been discussing. Uh, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? I'm good, my friends. Nice to be back. Indeed it is. Uh, so for our Simulcast listeners, just a reminder, if you want to join our discussions anytime, just go to www.simulationpodcast.com where we'll have the paper of the month and the discussion there. So for our podcast, we're going to go through this month's paper, which is a lot about intubation and procedural skills. And then I've got three short papers from the recent simulation literature for us to discuss. So if that's all right, Ben, why don't you uh, kick us off? Absolutely. So uh, the paper this month was entitled Developing a Profile of Procedural Expertise, a Simulation Study of Tracheal Intubation Using Three-Dimensional Motion Capture. And it was published in 2020 in Simulation and Healthcare and uh, written by Ben Carey et al. And look, most of us in healthcare education were pretty comfortable with the fact that safe tracheal intubation is an important and high-stakes procedure in healthcare. And the authors note, however, that despite the importance of teaching intubation well, a recent systematic review highlighted that there is no sufficiently valid approach to assess provider skill. And in essence, they argue that if we don't know what expertise looks like, then it becomes significantly hard to teach, or at least to teach with a level of academic validity. And so the authors of this study created a prospective investigation of 3D motion capture to characterize the physical movements of physicians performing tracheal intubation on airway mannequins. And essentially, they argued that by analyzing the difference in the physical movements made by novice and expert intubators, that they could begin to create a 3D analysis of what expertise looks like during intubation. They state that their study bases itself within the theory of radical embodied cognition, which I'm comfortable saying was a new new term for most of us uh, in the journal club. But from what I can gather, and I may be completely massacring this if there's a philosopher on the end of the line here, uh, radical embodied cognition argues that our movements and our thoughts are embodied together inseparably. And so the way I've kind of tried to constitutionalize that is, you know, it's taking the stance that our thoughts affect our movements, but also that our movements and our environment affect our thoughts. And to me, that struck me kind of the data that you look at where if you force someone to smile, they feel happier, for example. I think that's probably an analogy of thinking about that, where if you think, uh, I'm sure I'm getting it wrong, but that's for me a way I can process this concept that our movements and our thoughts are one whole being and can't necessarily be separated uh, as we tend to do and talk about ourselves as being kind of a computer brain and then a, a body that does whatever we're thinking. Uh, yes, and I'm not sure what's so radical about that, Ben. I would have thought that's a bit of a given. And and it's interesting, when I first came across this concept, it wasn't called that, but I think it was the same thing, and they were calling it surgical cognition, and that was about the inseparability for not just doing the procedure, say, of a bowel anastomosis, but deciding whether that stitch is really right or whether you need to redo it again or add another one. And so actually how you're thinking affects what you're doing and vice versa. Yeah, I think it uh, from what I could read, and I may have descended down a rabbit hole of reading <laughs> for a couple hours. I think it was radical because traditionally you were talking about cognitive processes as being purely 
cognitive and, and leading. So uh, I think that's quite a risque proposal in some circles, Vic. Anyway, I'm loving the terminology and it's <laughs> fun on the journal club, people trying to use it in a sentence. So uh, that's still an ongoing aspirational aim for me to throw no, in where I can. Yeah. Look, it, it, it's going to happen. We're going to do it. Maybe we'll do it <laughs> next month. It's a bit more of a difficult exercise. So, look, uh, the study mapped out a number of different clinical movements during intubation of a mannequin, such as the path lengths of the laryngoscopy handle in the right hand, the joint angle variability at the wrist, elbow, and shoulder in the sagittal plane, and hand acceleration. And by the end of the trial, they'd recruited 15 novices and 11 experienced subjects, each of which who intubated some pediatric and adult mannequins, and they did it about 21 times each. So the experienced providers reported more than 100 lifetime intubations on patients, and almost all of the novices had done less than 10. And I'm going to just quote their data here because I have no idea how to synthesize it, but uh, for laryngoscopy, experienced providers had shorter path length um, and greater angular variability at the wrist and the left elbow. And for intubation, experienced providers exhibited shorter path length of the right hand and lower maximum acceleration of the right hand and smaller angular variability at the right elbow, uh, which to me is sort of saying more efficient movements, but also more flexibility at certain discrete points. Yeah, and I think as someone who does do this procedure, albeit infrequently these days, and who has taught it, uh, this does actually make some intuitive sense to me, the kind of things that they've picked out. Uh, as to the exact veracity of those statistics, I'm not going to comment, but I think it is always good when the research has some intuitive appeal in terms of thinking about watching and doing intubations and what matters with your hands, your wrists, your elbows. Uh, it made sense to me. Yeah, I agree. And the authors certainly agree with you too. So they argue that the experienced providers move differently in specific ways, which together leads to the procedure being shorter with more economy of movement. And although most of the observed effect sizes were moderate, even small effects proximal in the kinetic chain will propagate. And they are very clear. I think I thought they were very fair in terms of their claims and they argue this is really the start of a much longer term mission to map procedural expertise in intubation it's a little bit of a pilot study in some ways and uh you know on that quest to understand how to teach it better and to understand the process better so that was the article Moving on to the group discussion, look, I think uh, perhaps understandably for this type of paper, we had a smaller group of participants in Journal Club this month, but it was a really great discussion. So I uh, thank you to Lon Setnick, Sarah Jansen, Dan Houghton for your participation and yourself, obviously, Vic. And overall, look, there was a lot of appreciation for the methods and the mission of the study and some debate about how well the results could be practically applied in teaching. And in particular, debate about how much we agreed with this theory of radical embodied condition. So Lon began the month's discussion with a really beautifully specific breakdown of the article as he raised concerns about the way intubation as a physical procedure was broken down in the analysis versus the way he visualizes it as a teachable skill with many more smaller components than were described in this kind of whole movement analysis. And he also flagged the importance of physical fidelity for this type of analysis, both in terms of the airway anatomy and interestingly, he highlighted the physics of the tissue itself, which I think we'd probably be comfortable with with a lot of airway mannequins. Uh, the shape might be right, but the feel certainly can be highly variable. 
and his concerns were mirrored by others, such as Sarah and Dan Houghton, who flagged concern about overemphasizing physical movement over the adaptive expertise that might be required for different conceptual and physical challenges in real-life intubations. Although I think it's important to note that this was really fairly acknowledged in the author's comments and limitations sections. I don't think this was what they were pushing per se. Uh, I was really excited to see Belinda Lowe come on, who, as we know, has a large amount of expertise in procedural skills training through simulation, uh, particularly in laparoscopic sim. And uh, she said, look, clearly by defining expertise, there would be opportunity to then study the learning curves of intubation and also credentialing for novice practitioners using simulators. And she described how similar data can be given to students rehearsing in VR simulations to then inform them of their progress so they can do some internal benchmarking with that kind of data. And then, Vic, you raised a really important point, which was the risk with this sort of study that by defining expertise as what experts are already doing, we potentially stifle future innovations. And uh, you gave us the example of the Fosbury flop in high jump. I was wondering if you could elaborate for our listeners. <laughs> yes, well, I think the point being that if all we do is try and emulate the people who've gone before us, we may well get that incremental expertise that I think this kind of research really supports well. Uh, but the story of the Fosbury flop is up until that point uh, where high jumpers were going at the Olympics were using various techniques that involved rolling over the bar or scissoring over the bar. And it wasn't until and if you'd all if you'd studied that, you could have studied the biomechanics and just tried to get better and better at those techniques. But then Dick Fosbury came along and went, you know what, I'm going to jump over that bar backwards and it means I can get a certain uh, ergonomic advantage. As it turns out, that's pretty much how every high jumper in the last 40 years has approached high jump. And so we wouldn't have got that if all we'd done was tried to do those original techniques better. So I think, uh, yeah, a really uh, valuable point for this type of paper. Um I guess finally there was much debate about this concept of radical embodied cognition and how much inference could be taken on our cognitive processes from our movements in that the authors uh, sort of state that uh, at least a partial inference on your cognitive processes can be drawn from the way that we move. And I think that's probably true. Uh, uh, but, or certainly I think all of us make judgments on other people's cognitive processes based on the way they move all the time. But uh, I think we were somewhat more sceptical of it in terms of potentially drawing conclusions from a paper about what expertise looks like. Yeah, I think there's quite a few interesting things there. I think that comments about the physical fidelity are relevant. We have all know we've got a certain technique for intubating a mannequin, which is not quite the same as the one we take to our real patients. As to, you know, this question about is the whole more than the sum of the parts, I think the answer is yes. And clearly you can't just say I'm going to get every single step and get it right and then magically it will all come together. It does need to come together with expertise that is the tacit stuff in between the micro skills of how you pick up the laryngoscope versus how you hold the tube versus what you do as the next step. So I think breaking things down into micro skills is really helpful for training and we need to put them together then in a whole part uh, and that will sometimes mean that there are steps in the glue between the micro skills that do still need independently to be trained.
So, uh, to get an expert opinion, I consulted a good friend of Simulcast, Dr. Albert Chan. Uh, and for those of you who haven't met him yet on the podcast or in real life, he works as a specialist anaesthetist at the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care in Prince of Wales Hospital in Hong Kong, where he's also the supervisor of training. And he has special interest in cardiac anesthesia and perioperative echocardiography and cardiac cath lab procedures, uh, particularly minimally invasive structural heart procedures. Uh, and Albert has written us a lovely review and critique of this paper, which I think echoes in many ways the thoughts of other participants, but much like Lon's thoughts, has a lot of granular knowledge surrounding the process of intubation itself. So he cautions against cautions against emphasizing specific movements over the main goal, which is, from his perspective is first pass success, which seems pretty fair. Um, <clears throat> but he does acknowledge that when he's watching trainees intubate, from sort of a systems to automated perspective, he does have an instinctive response to their movements and a gut feel as to whether they're going to be successful or not. So in some ways he agrees that movement is part of the picture there, but really wanted to emphasize very specifically that movement alone is not enough. He argues that kinematic movement is only part of what contributes to success of laryngoscopy and intubation, and more importantly is the force that is applied to lift up the epiglottis and the area that of the that fo- sorry, the area that the force is applied and the direction that that force is applied. Not to mention that in older children and adults you have to apply this force without chipping or knocking out a few teeth. And the positioning of the head and neck position to align the intubation axis and the neck extension to open up the mouth are all contributors to first pass success. And so I think simply asking novices to mimic the movements of an expert profile during intubation <clears throat> may not lead to success. He, like many of us, found the, this concept of radical embodied cognition fairly ephemeral. And he argues that mimicking kinematic movements of experts during intubation won't lead to success unless there is a cognitive linkage between the action and the result. And that is if they move the laryngoscope in this way and apply the force this way, they're able to visualise the larynx better. Now, if you follow Albert on Instagram, you will know that he's a very active guy. And if I inferred what his life was like from Instagram, it's pretty much working out water polo and wake surfing. It's hashtag life goals there. So he ends with an analogy about learning wake surfing, noting that he's trying to learn some new tricks at the moment. And video playback in combination with specific verbal coaching has been a successful way for him to progress. So maybe there's something in this after all, Vic. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you're spending too much time on Instagram to even know that about Albert. Just talking But I think if people are really interested in this, they might be like to look up stuff like video reflexography, or is that what it's called? Uh, or reflexive videography. So a little editor's note here. What I meant was video reflexive ethnography. You're listening to Simulcast. Anyway, the point is where you you um, video people's performance and then you talk to them afterwards about what they've done and so you then get an idea about both the cognition as people are doing those motor skills and I think that probably gets at exactly the point Albert's talking about. Maybe that's what he's been doing with his kite surfing. All right, well, thank you, Ben, and it's not something we talk a lot about procedural skill simulation here, which is not to say it's not important. In fact, when you look at the numbers of highly cited uh, papers in simulation journals, a lot of them are surgical and procedural, so I think this is a timely thing to look at. We made Sarah Jansen's very happy, if nothing else. Yes, 
<laughs> You're listening to Simulcast. Well, I'm going to stay in the procedural skills theme for the first of these uh, and talk about the procedural skill of fracture reduction. And this is a paper from a journal that we don't feature much, but which has a lot of great quality medical education stuff called Perspectives in Medical Education. And it's from this year. And the title of the paper is Development of a 3D Printed Simulator for Closed Reduction of Distal Radius Fractures by William Dixon et al. And I will have a note about the group and the institution where they've done that because uh, this is Mike Gizondi's team at Stanford who've actually set up a lab um, called Pearl uh, Precision Education and Assessment Research Lab. And I know from talking with Mike that this is very much set up uh, to try and really track and trace and quantify performance, particularly of doctors, but more healthcare staff broadly, but particularly looking at procedural skills, among other things. So that's the kind of background to why this group is doing this kind of work. So specifically to look at this paper, uh, the reason for doing this work they, they talk about, which is, look, distal radius fractures are common. And just for people who might not be clinicians or emergency people like us, this is when you fall onto your outstretched hand and then you get a fracture of your wrist, it looks bent, and we have to straighten it up. Uh, and it does need a certain physical skill in order to be doing that. So you need a couple of people, but you certainly need a certain amount of traction, a certain amount of manipulation in order to try and get that bone back in alignment. Uh, they make the point that training is inconsistent and they say, look, maybe simulation can help this, but up until now there hasn't been an easy simulator to emulate the challenge that we need to do. So they thought, well, maybe we could 3D print a simulator that would help us. So how did they go about this? And I will say I learned a little bit more about 3D printing, which wouldn't be hard, but it looks like you go to a what they describe as an open source site where you can download or get the software for the anatomy of a radius and ulna at the wrist, and then they have some uh, editing software that means you can put in a fracture line where you want it, and then obviously you go and print then the bone that is fractured. And then sounds like the way they put together and they've got some lovely pictures here and I have no doubt that if you were into this stuff you could replicate this simulator without too much trouble and they attach the bones together in their fractured state using sort of fishing line and string and then they cover that all up with skin and a fake hand so you end up with a fractured wrist uh, and they say it cost $140 to put that together. Um, I don't know, Ben, do you know more about 3D printing than me? But it seemed to me pretty intuitive and well explained. Yeah, no, I thought it was well explained. I don't know much. I had figured you would probably have some access to it on the Gold Coast of Bond somewhere. Surely there's a 3D printer floating around. Yeah, we certainly have access and I know the people who are doing it, but myself, I've never found myself in front of a computer playing with that open source software. So, uh, but maybe I should. It's still time. <laughs> There's still time. Uh, but importantly, this paper isn't just about building the simulator. It was also about what they did with it. And it's probably relevant to know that the senior author here, Mike Gisondi, uh, although initially trained at Stanford, has actually spent the last 10 or 15 years at Northwestern. And I think that's relevant because the 
educational framework in which they use this is a simulation-based mastery learning approach uh, where you develop a checklist for what are the points of performance that you expect if someone is reducing a wrist fracture. So they put both emergency medicine and orthopedic trainees uh, through this process using the simulator, and then they ask them some things, including the instructors, how realistic was this compared to doing a real fracture reduction? And uh, the overall thoughts was it was pretty realistic. And then I thought perhaps the most interesting things to come out of that is how would they see it being used? And in addition to it being used, obviously, in a sort of course or teaching concept, they also saw it being used as a just-in-time practice. So let's imagine that you're about to do this on a real patient, but why don't you just take uh, 15 minutes to practice doing it on the simulator before you then walk into the room and do it on the real patient. And I think there's lots more opportunity for us to look at these kinds of things. I know that some of the groups that you work with, Ben, have looked at doing that for paediatric lumbar puncture uh, and actually priming yourself for a procedure literally just before you do it uh, in a real patient. So I really like the paper. Um, ben, thoughts? No, I did. It's just one of those great papers that describes something well that's relatively cheap, doable uh, and important. So I was really excited by it. Mm. I think that just-in-time training ability is really cool. All right. Well, we're going to move away from procedural skills now and talk about latent safety threats. And I've got a pair of papers that come from the same group in Toronto that many people will know, the friends of Simulcast there, um, Carrie White, Chris Hicks, Andrew Petrosoniak, and the uh, group there have published two papers that I'm going to talk about now. And the first is probably their main paper, and this is recently published uh, in BMJ Quality and Safety, and it's the TRUST study. So that stands for Trauma Resuscitation Using in situ Simulation Team Training latent safety threat evaluation using framework analysis and video review. And this has Andrew Petrosoniak as the first author. Uh, and the background to this, and I know that this work has been going on actually for some years, uh, but unsurprisingly, and, and given that some of my work is in trauma, this feels very familiar. Trauma care is complex and challenging. Uh, trying to improve it is really hard because it's a complex interplay of people, the physical environment, human factors, systems. And so what we know is that in any situation where teams are trying to provide care for a trauma patient, uh, there are what they call latent safety threats, i.e. there's deficiencies in the tools, the technology, the physical environment and the team interactions. So this study is essentially an exploratory study trying to identify the latent safety threats in their major trauma care. Uh, so this is a major trauma centre in Toronto where they did this work. And what they essentially did, and I'll probably just summarise the much longer and highly detailed um, description they give, but they set up monthly in situ trauma simulations and they actually developed a small group of four or five scenarios that they delivered based on their needs analysis of what they saw as their high-risk situations that would be typical but not comprehensive, um, but a typical reflection of the challenges their trauma team would have. So what they did was they delivered these simulations in situ. They had the usual team that would be looking after the patient, but then unusually they had direct observation both by the simulation team and human factors experts who are watching these simulations. And they're also recording. So they describe how they have cameras set up in different parts of the room, as well as audio recordings on certain members of the team. So they really had quite a good capture of the detail of what went on. 
But most importantly for this paper was how they analysed what they saw uh, because, as they say, really their primary outcome here was not to find what the latent safety threats were but to develop up a framework as to how we should identify those and categorise those. So they did find a range of factors, and I won't go through them all, but as they said, they did this process of hazard scoring and risk prioritisation where they looked at a particular incident, and take one example, um, blood product administration, and they found some delays in that. And they would say, look, this is both frequent and it's also really significant in terms of its impact on the patient. So it goes right to the top of their framework uh, or hazard score. Likewise, there was a delay in accessing equipment for surgical airway performance, which, again, uh, it might be frequent in the scenario in which they do it, although it's an infrequent um, clinical situation, fortunately, and obviously very critical. Uh, so I think those sorts of things really help to build a way that we can identify this because, in fact, in their 12 sessions, they found 843 latent safety threats. And so I think when you see that kind of number, Ben, you start to think, well, what are we going to do with that data? How do we improve it? How do we categorise it? And I think you've got to come up with something more than a really long list of things that you're going to give to your quality and safety people, and this is a good step in how to do that. So... Uh, the one other thing that I would sort of pull out of it is a comment about some of the latent safety threats were not apparent to the providers who were in it, and that's simply because they just get used to it, they do their work around. And so I think having human factors experts watch these things adds a huge amount of value. And the example they gave of this was uh, where the vital signs monitor wasn't ergonomic, and so we get used to just turning around and twisting our back, but the human factors experts say, why the hell don't you put the monitor somewhere else? So obviously I'm going to like it, Ben. Um, other thoughts, comments? Oh, total, total convert. Uh, I loved it. Um, I think it's a really sort of important puzzle piece in the sort of translational sim slash quality and safety uh, movement. And um, I think that that point that you highlighted in particular of needing that external kind of human factor expert to identify things is really important. And I'd love to see us get to a place where we could do video analysis of our real resuscitations. Um, but I think at least doing simulated ones is a little bit of a workaround for the identity threat that that might, and the medical legal threat that that might pose. Um, so I just admire these guys so much. Absolutely. I suppose the only worry I've got is that, most of us mere mortals are not going to necessarily have the tools they had. And, again, by way of background, I know they're also influenced by the fact that at their same institution they've got the black box OR people uh, where they do some of the same recordings of their real operating theatre cases and they have huge number of data points to try and analyse these same sorts of things. So it's another example where this kind of research doesn't happen out of the blue. It's often the end result of lots of primary work um, so, yeah, what do you think? How, how does the mere mortal approach this? Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because one note that I had written and then not read out was that I think these are these papers are just so goddamn brilliant that for a lot of readers it would be easy to mystify this as a sort of Petrosaniac masterclass and not feel like there's a whole heap of achievable small stuff that you can do locally. So. I, I think I would love to see like this paper uh, be the data point and then maybe some more 
translational papers where they break down what are, what are some achievable small chunks uh, that uh, can be achieved in, in either less resourced or less experienced emergency departments because there's got to be a lot of uh, easy wins here as well, like, a, a, like mm. a, a few low-hanging fruit at least that would help get the ball rolling. Mm, I agree. And if there's one bit of low-hanging fruit, I mean, I think these methodologies, and I know Steph Barwick and the team at MARTA do this too, but taking these tools that are perhaps less familiar to us as clinicians, the FMEA analysis, which are all just hazard matrices just like this, how common is the problem and how severe is the problem. And uh, there are probably people in our institutions who could help us with this. It's just that we're not familiar with working with them, and that's, I think, a take-home for most of us also. Agreed. All right. And then our last paper comes from the same study, but it looks at it in a slightly different way. So from the same group, but first author here is Sparsh Shah uh, and also with Melissa McGowan and Andrew Petrosoniak. And this is just in BMJ Stell, uh, and that's called Latent Safety Threat Identification During In-Situ Simulation Debriefing a Qualitative Analysis. So the background to this, similar to that, is, um, look, one of the aims, as we know from this In-Situ Sim or Translational Sim, is to look for these latent safety threats uh, but when we do in-situ simulation, one of the challenges in doing that is that often participants are still in education mode. So when it comes to a debrief, they focus on their own learning and performance. And to be honest, the simulation facilitators are often drawn into doing that too, sometimes because they literally don't have the skill to talk about some of those latent safety threats or language in order to do that, and also because just the educational frameworks are familiar in their heads. So I think this paper really gets uh, or it starts to approach the idea about how can facilitators focus their participants in debriefing on helping to identify latent safety threats and what do they find when they do. So this is embedded within the same trust study, so the same uh, monthly simulation scenarios with a trauma focus with the four that they developed that were common. But then they go on to focus really on, on the debriefs that they do with the team afterwards. And reading through it, their scenarios were about, uh, they weren't long actually, they were 15 minutes and then uh, debriefs about the same length of time. And they described the debriefing as being interprofessional focused on latent safety threats and using a systems-focused debriefing framework, and that's the work from Marette Dubay from a different part of Canada over there in Alberta. Uh, and then they analysed the conversations um, using, and they describe in some detail that I won't go into, but a, a pretty well-described approach to analysing the qualitative data that they got out of these conversations. And they came up with five major themes, which are probably not surprising, but just to sort of give you a sense of them. Uh, the things people talked about were communication and teamwork, system-level issues, things like how did the massive transfusion protocol work, uh, resource constraints, positive team performance, which they found quite common, people doing that, and then potential improvements, things like should we get some pre-drawn medications for certain things that we use all the time. And uh, in terms of what does all this mean, um, I think they sort of return back to the discussion that it is challenging to shift staff away from just focusing on themselves or on their teams. And so how do we label signpost 
um, and help shift the uh, participants away from purely focusing on interpersonal personal behaviour because they can have a really important role to play in these latent safety threats identification. And perhaps the bit that is worthy of more discussion here is how does a pre-briefing frame that up? How does your initial lines in your debriefing frame that up? Which they kind of made allusion to, but I would still be interested to see how that played out at their shop to get a sense of how they do it. So again, um, good work and another good example of how there's often lots of things to draw out of any particular bit of research work that we do, Ben. Agreed. And I loved reading these papers as an extension of uh, their human factor paper, well, Hicks and Petrosonius' uh, human factor paper, in that, you know, they've, they've started out with this beautiful, clear layout of self-team environment system. Uh, and I think we're often guilty in the in-situ world of promoting the benefits of identifying latent safety threats without good categorization without clear escalation pathways or documentation pathways. And I have to say I'm finding uh, similar challenges in clinical event debriefing. And so it was it was almost cathartic for me to read this paper and see them say, we tell people we're looking for latent safety threats. We tell them we're not focused on talking about communication today. And what they give us is the communication was good. We need more closed loops and the very people find it really hard to find the actual yeah the actual value add for the for the environment and system part of that teamwork ecosystem and uh so it was just it was like an emotional release reading this and just going oh god they're so right we are so bad at this and um i think it's i think we're much better at instinctively understanding when communication goes wrong and and so we talk about it more. I'm also curious about whether debriefing training and the simulation community is guilty of ritualistically uh, embedding those conversations into us to the point where people feel that's expected and that's what they're supposed to talk about to the point that we've maybe made the problem worse. Uh, and I think... A lot of us, including myself, need need more training on and putting on that very different mindset of what's going on with the environment, what's going on with the system, um, and how can we interact with it better. So, I, again, greatly admire, would appreciate some smaller micro-application advice uh, for how to achieve this, some conversational strategies for focusing the conversation more on the technology mm. or the, the processes, but uh, I loved every mm. minute of reading it. Mm. I um I agree with you on that point, and then I also diverge a little. So I'm with you. I hate the sort of performative tell that facilitator what we've come to expect the sim conversation is, closed-loop communication, blah, 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 good teamwork, blah, blah, good leadership. Yes, we've encouraged that. A lot of it is good conversations to be having, but sometimes it can feel ritualistic if you're not really prompting people. That said, Ben, 
I kind of wonder, is the SIM really to fix, identify the latent safety threats or is it to connect the people such that they've got strong relationships, mutual trust and psychological safety that when they go back into the workplace, they actually work on those things because they do trust each other, you see. I would say that, wouldn't I? But I think that's worth thinking about. I I am loath to abandon the uh, focus on issues related to interpersonal behaviour because ultimately I think that may have a longer lasting effect than these latent safety threats. Now, I don't know that, but I'm just putting it out there. Uh, The other thing that I think, and it's sort of, they do say this in their comments about, um, you know, limitations in particular, and that is that they could show the video to the participants because I do wonder in in the moment if you've got much appreciate, well, as they point out, you don't have much appreciation for turning around and looking at the monitor in an awkward way. You just do it. And so I suspect if people saw themselves, they might get into more discussions, particularly about things like physical workflows. So that would be, I think, an interesting thing to kind of look at. And I guess the other thing is, they didn't really talk about having the human factors people involved in the debrief. And I'm thinking about the pilots, the Ponder Med uh, episode that I interviewed the group over in the NHS at the Whittington that have got the pilots watching their inside you sims joining in the debriefs. And I wonder if they would be better at sort of then getting the participants out of that shell, as it were, and going, oh, now we're talking about human factors with pilots. And so I'm not going to fall into my usual habits that I have with my medical and nursing facilitators, as it were. So, so much more interesting stuff to do, Ben. Agreed. And I agree I agree with your points. I think uh, you do build up that culture. I just think if we're not practising talking about it, we're pro- I don't think we're teaching people at the same time. So I think there's opportunity for us to start breadcrumbing. Uh, that's a real verb. I looked it up. And um, <laughs> but I, I think we can start breadcrumbing in some of these concepts into our insight you better or our particularly actually more the clinical event debriefing. Like I think we can do better at teaching people how to, how to look through a very different lens to what we're useful, used to. I don't know how, which is why I want another paper, but, yeah. All right. Well, fortunately, we're going to keep reading these papers, so this is a good thing. All right, Ben, why don't you breadcrumb us into the November Journal Club? (laughs) Well, I I think you've set us up for a layup here in that I think that that conversation, those last two papers, kind of segues nicely into... Uh, our last paper for the year. So uh, published in Advances in Simulation, uh, the paper is entitled Making the Invisible Visible, a place for utilising activity theory within in-situ simulation to drive healthcare organisational development, and it's by Jared Gormley et al. Uh, and it covers uh, a very different form uh, of activity theory and uh, essentially proposes embedding it within debriefs to maybe get some more uh, of that quality and safety action-oriented, patient-focused outcome uh, to your learning conversation. So uh, I look forward to the discussion.
Yeah, me too. And I think the other thing that this is is a lesson about applying theory to practice. And this is the group um, in Northern Ireland in Belfast that we've who have been guests at Simulcast before and we've featured some of their other work. And I think they really are helping us do some of that uh, applying theory to practice as well as putting a very practical spin on it through something like this about how can that help us get the most out of these uh, simulation activities that we do, as well as in some cases sounding some warnings. Uh, so I'm hoping we'll get some comments from them on the blog as well. Great. Well, Ben, it's been uh, a pleasure as always breadcrumbs, basketball with the layups. The analogies are coming thick and fast. Uh, but for Simulcast listeners, um, please go on to our website, uh, simulationpodcast.com, where you'll find the paper Ben's talking about, uh, his case study, and where you can leave some comments for us. And we'll look forward to seeing you in, your, in a month and uh, discussing that paper and more. And thank you again, Ben. Stay radical. <laughs> All right, it's Vic Brazel signing off for Simulcast. <laughs> You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.